0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Charles Fang Lehman, who has written several incisive City Journal pieces this year, and I'm happy to say is now a new adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Charles will be writing more for CJ and working with the Institute's new Policing and Public Safety Initiative. And he's a staff writer with the Washington Free Beacon, where he covers a broad range of domestic policy issues. You can follow him on Twitter at Charles F. Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N. Charles, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on, Brian.
0: Your latest piece for City Journal focuses on a growing crisis that you've been writing about for a while now, and that's this fact that across America, police officers seem to be quitting their departments in record numbers. Uh, That article, which we we call Police Departments on the Brink, explains what's happening with these forces in a number of big cities and even small towns across the country. Uh, Could you go into some of the details of what you found when you looked into this?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I, I I think it really is the case that this is a comprehensive phenomenon. On the one hand, I looked at the 50 biggest cities in the United States, and I found that in roughly half of them, either police chiefs or officers, had resigned or retired uh, in the past year. On the other hand, it's also localized to very small towns. So the city council in Norman, Oklahoma, voted to defund their police department and uh, 14 officers retired, a majority of the force is out in Knightstown, Indiana. Um, these are tiny, tiny places. Uh, so really it is from the biggest cities in the United States to uh, the smallest little towns, cops are finding themselves uh, under enormous unprecedented pressure. And the really necessary consequence of that change in dynamic is that the average cop is more likely to quit their job and therefore more cops are leaving their jobs. There. Ah, uh, retiring. They're taking sick leave. They're resigning altogether. Ah, uh, they're departing for other more hospitable uh, environments.
0: So it's really, uh, in your view, the kind of current climate uh, in twenty twenty uh, that is demoralizing police forces. Yeah, my you know my argument is twofold. On the one hand, there's a long standing problem
1: where if you look at the number of costs per capita. Uh, it sort of rose steadily through the early 1990s when the federal government put a lot of money into police hiring as part of cutting uh, cutting back on crime in the United States. It plateaus through the early 2000s, relatively high level. And then around the Great Recession, I suspect largely because of uh, the fiscal austerity that that necessitated, co- policing numbers begin to decline. And then they continue to decline even after the recovery takes effect. Uh, and that's partially, again, a function of local politics, but also, I think, a function of a series of uh, anti-police moments, first in 2015 with the Ferguson Associated Protests, and now, again, this past summer, um, it is – it is you know, both of the factors – there are two factors at play there, one being the uh, lack of funding for police, or sort of limits imposed by the actors that fund police, and the other one being public hostility to the police, which – uh, obviously, it's become more and more of an issue um, and, and hustle to the police from lawmakers as well. Uh, you know, I think so. I think both culturally and financially, uh, police are under more pressure than they have been in decades. And that takes a real toll.
0: The concier- you know, the, the, the worry here is, is, of course, that the shrinking of police departments is going to have uh, negative implications for public safety, especially in poor communities. You know, you've got cities like Minneapolis, um, which I'm sure you're aware has seen a, a pretty significant spike in violent crime since the George uh, Floyd incident this summer and the subsequent riots and defund efforts by the city council. Um, you know, why that turmoil was going on, the city's police chief has reported, I think his department is down about 150 officers from the beginning of the year. You know, in part due to uh, retirements, medical leave, uh, and we're we're starting to see this in New York too, as Ralph Manguel and uh, Nicole Gelinas have been reporting for City Journal. What you know, what do we know, know from a criminological perspective about the size of a city's police d- force or towns' police force and crime rates?
1: I mean, what what we know, just sort of very practically, is that there's a strong relationship between the number of police officers and the crime level. Uh, so, for example, we can we know that the introduction of uh, federal funding for police at a couple of different points, uh, then the ensuing increase in police populations consistently drives down the crime rate. Um, and we can say that the obverse is almost certainly true, that if you cut funding for the police and if you reduce the number of police officers out on the street, then there will be almost certainly an increase in the crime rate. That's for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, there will be fewer resources to go around. So I've, I've looked at um, Minneapolis and there's very clearly been a withdrawal by the police. If you look at the number of um, stock question and frisk incidents that uh, or stop question and frisk reports that uh, the department publishes, there was a substantial drop off in the middle of the protests. And there is sort of a very simple numerical reason for that, which is that if there are fewer cops and there are more demands on the cops, then the ability of the cops to be in a number of pla- in the number of places the cops can be in diminishes. Um, So that's, you know, that's half the equation. The other half of the equation is as the number of police officers decline, there can be a a vicious cycle where uh, because there are more cops being asked to do the same amount or more work, uh, they're more likely to be stressed out. They're more likely to be tired. There might be a negative selection effect where the kind of cop who wants to stay is not necessarily the kind of cop you want to stay. Um, and the the cumulative effect is that the cop, uh, the marginal cop will be more likely to be the cop who engages in uh, police misconduct, engages in unjustifiable use of force, um, and that will increase public hostility to the police further, which will further the vicious cycle.
0: So you really do create a kind of downward spiral in officer quality potentially here. Um, would that also imply a lower caliber of recruit perhaps coming into the force?
1: Yeah, and that's also a long-standing problem. The Police Executive Research Forum put out a report, I think, two years ago at this point, where they said that uh, the popularity of policing is just one of many factors that's uh, challenging bringing in new cops. Um, Somebody, a a friend of mine, reached out to me after this article was published and said his brother is uh, 24, 25, something like that, and has really has lost friends because he's a police officer and it's no longer a respectable thing to do among his particular age cohort. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's going to reduce people's desire to become a cop. Lots of other factors are, too. Uh, until the pandemic, we had a very tight labor market. Uh, people were less likely to become cops because comparatively they can get better jobs elsewhere. That's a, stand, a longstanding issue. Uh, the question of educational level, uh, as as American education more polarized, uh, people who are highly educated, are less likely to become cops, but policing is going to demand more education over time because more more technico- technologically intensive uh, phenomena. So there, there, there are lots of factors which I think are driving a long-term decline in police recruitment. If you ask police executives, they all basically say, yeah, we've got big problems recruiting people. Um, and, and it's very clear the case that you know, while the cultural stuff is one part of a bigger issue, it's like a very vital part. It's clearly the most visible part, which means from a signaling perspective to potential recruits, it's clearly the thing that's at the front of their mind is if I become a cop and something goes wrong, are people going to stand up for me or am I going to be tarred and feathered by the media?
0: The uh, obvious question uh, is how do you arrest this downward spiral, improve police recruitment, slow down? you know, the number of of cops in the forces, uh, what, you know, what can can be done uh, from a policy standpoint or from a cultural standpoint uh, to turn this around? Because the implications are going to be uh, very worrisome for cities in particular.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my, you know, my view has been consistently that if you want any of a number of better outcomes, whether you want uh, less crime, or you want Whatever substantive reforms of the police you might propose, if you want to get there, then the first thing you have to do is be willing to spend more on policing. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, A, A we, we simply know that competitive civil service positions require good funding. Um, the canonical example is Singapore, where top level executives in the government paid millions of dollars because they want to be competitive with the best CEOs in the country and the world. Um, but the the principle extends down to the sort of lower echelons of the civil service. Um, if you want to bring in the guys who have experience and competency, if you want to make it uh, worthwhile for people who are in it for the right reasons, then you need to say you need to make policing an attractive role. Um, and then that also, as I said, is related to uh, to the extent that there are reforms that people are interested in. If you if you want to extract reforms from a local police union. Um, that almost always means reducing uh, job protections for officers. And if you want to do that, then you have to have some trade-off. You can't just – you know, part of the problem with the quote-unquote defund the police movement is that it's essentially punitive in its policy theory. It's saying we don't like what cops are doing, so we're going to punish them by taking away money. And it's like, no, you have to change the incentive structure. And one way to do that is to uh, conceivably well, I don't necessarily agree with this, but if, if that was what we wanted to do, um, you, could, you could reduce – protect job protection of cops, but you have to make a trade. You can be willing to pay them more. You can be willing to compensate them better. And, and you know, I think there are lots of policy levers that are available uh, to do that. Um, to his credit, uh, Joe Biden has been actually pretty good on this topic. Um, he's the, you know, the the cops office, which I talked about earlier, that caused the spike in um, uh, police hiring in the 90s as part of uh, the violent crime, the anti-violent crime bill in 1994. Uh, which gets, in my opinion, sort of wrongly attacked. Um, and he's he said he wants to spend more money on cops. Um, the Trump administration was, I, I think, less good on this and there was some push to reduce and defund the cops' office, um, and that was an issue. Uh, but look bro- broadly speaking, you know, I would like to believe that spend more federal money on cops and federalize more of the cost of policing is a first obvious step to keeping the sort of fundamentally important um uh fundamentally important social role uh attractive and competitive for the sort of people that we want to hire to it like you know if, if there are things the government should spend money on it's like keeping us safe and this is the way that you keep us safe and so that's sort of the first step to uh ensuring that that's true
0: going forward well we, we've certainly seen that in new york where the safety revolution of the 90s and 2000s helped rejuvenate the city brought back commerce um you, know, you you had pre-pandemic uh, an economy that was as robust as any in recent uh, New York history. So a lot of that was dependent on public safety. And that's why it's really so troublesome to see a crime rates spiking, you know, not just in New York, but, but in other big cities as well. Um, what are, you know, some of the themes uh, or, or concerns that you're going to be looking at uh, at the Institute, um, you know, over the months ahead. Absolutely. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm
1: I'm still floating a number of different projects, and there's a lot that I'm very excited to do. I'm I'm really excited to be working with the institute and be working with City Journal. Uh, I can say that of the the ideas that are sort of floating around, uh, I am I'm in early research on a piece about uh, what non-policing interventions can effectively reduce uh, crime. Where you know my my view is that there's a there's a push on the institutional left more broadly to say that we should come with alternatives to policing. And I think there's very little realistic support for that as a position, but the policymakers uh, would do well to think about what are the complements to policing, and what are the cost effective measures they can take uh, to reduce crime, to reduce violence in their communities that work alongside or supplement policing as a vital part of the public safety infrastructure um, to keep communities safe and therefore to keep them thriving and vibrant in the way you are talking about. Um, I also expect to do some in-depth work with New York City's uh, data on hate crimes and looking at the way the criminal justice system responds to hate crimes. Um, There's Obviously, this is a big deal in the past year. There's a wave of anti-Semitic hate crimes in the city, and I'd like to look more comprehensively at trends and ask the question of how well is New York City's criminal justice responding to uh, hate crime offenses. Um, And then I... Uh, Also going to be looking potentially, although uh, I'm I'm still figuring things out, but I'm I'm interested in uh, trends in the crime decline, which is really a sort of uh, framing feature of all contemporary discourse about uh, crime and punishment in the United States, This sort of miraculous decline in violent crime in the past 20 years. And uh, as I've noted in my reporting, but I think it's an underreported phenomenon otherwise, the crime decline ended about 10 years ago. Um, It terminated again around the time of the Great Recession. Uh, And I'm interested in talking about what happened, what went wrong, and what policy choices we can make to recover that, uh, and potentially reframing the conversation to make the point that we really are leaving, you know, millions millions of dollars and thousands of lives left unsaved where policy choices that have moved us away from the uh, successes of the late 1990s and early 2000s in terms of driving down crime, that... Uh, we should not see this as you know we should not see the crime climate as something that is necessarily over but as a an active policy goal worth pursuing
0: well that sounds uh, tremendously interesting Charles looking forward to uh, featuring your writing uh, again in the future uh, don't forget to check out Charles Fane Lehman's work for us at city journal and at the Washington free beacon we'll link to his bio in the description and you can again follow him on Twitter at Charles F Lehman You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore M-I. And as always, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a nice ratings on iTunes. Thanks for listening. And thanks, Charles, very much for joining us. Yep. Thanks very much for having me on, Brian.